Northwestern Wisconsin is home to a globally rare and unusual ecosystem. There's a good chance that you've never seen it in person before. In fact, uh, according to our next guest, some people say you have to be lost to find it. Wisconsin's Pine Barrens are home to a unique habitat. It's a place with a long human and natural history. Our next guest is the author of a new book about the history and ecology of one of Wisconsin's most unique wildlife areas. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you visited the Pine Barrens here in Wisconsin? Have you heard about them? Have you had any interesting wildlife sightings if you've been there? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dave Peters is a retired journalist, including, by the way, with Minnesota Public Radio. His new book is Sand and Fire, Exploring a Rare Pine Barrens Landscape. Dave, welcome to Central Time. Thank you. Good to be with you, Rob. Can you give us a quick description of the Pine Barrens? Set the scene. Paint us a picture. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a uh, captivating place. I, I stumbled upon it some years ago, driving around in what I thought was the North Woods, and all of a sudden, the land opened up, the trees disappeared, and I was in this open, not quite a prairie. There are trees, lots of low trees, jack pines and scrub oak, a lot of brush like blueberries and uh, sweet fern and flowers. It just uh, is an open, a lot of people refer to it as a brush prairie. Not really a prairie there because there are more trees than that, but you can see the horizon and it just really delivers a sense of space in what you thought was the North Woods. And what's interesting is you and, and people who research these kind of things describe it as a mosaic of, of some different things that kind of shift and grow into each other and change over time. That's right. It, it, uh, people like, like the term, the sh- a shifting mosaic, because one of the key elements of a barrens is that it burns regularly. So after a burn, the oaks will be killed back and the jack pines uh, affected. And after a few years, they start to grow back. The brush comes up. I know people who say they uh, wait two years after a burn and then they go in and go blueberry picking. So Mm -hmm. the blueberries come on and sweet fern comes up and then uh, aspen grows up and it gets big enough. And after a few more years, It'll burn again and and shift back. You tell the natural story and the human story of the Pine Barrens here in Wisconsin. Let's go way back. The key here is that this is there's sand. There's lots of sand and it goes down deep. Why did the sand end up there? It's glacial outwash sand that uh, poured out of the glaciers from uh, uh, to the north, uh, Lake Superior. And they deposited just an unfathomable amount of sand. It's hundreds of feet thick. There's this band of northwest sands that runs from about Bayfield down to St. Croix Falls, about 150 miles, maybe 20 miles wide. It's very thick, and uh, it's mostly pretty flat. It's like uh, if you've ever been to Alaska or Iceland, I guess, Uh, These braided rivers come pouring out of the glaciers and laying down all this sand. And and that's pretty much all there is there is sand. So that uh, the sand, it drains quickly, as you might expect. And so the land is very dry. And that's what makes it so prone to fires as well. 
Now, I think barrens and I think sand, and I guess I'm picturing, Dave, a desert, but <laughs> you have photographic evidence. It is not a desert. Can you talk about the variety of life in this environment? Uh, yeah, it definitely is not barren in that sense. Um, like I say, some people refer to it as a brush prairie uh, because there's lots of brush, prairie willows, blueberries, as I mentioned, sweet ferns, uh, New Jersey tea. Uh, at one point in the Namakagan Barrens, or at one po- uh, one place in the Namakagan Barrens, there's a bog, so that you have pitcher plants down in a, in a wet environment. Um, the whole thing is kind of a uh, it's habitat for uh, the key species that, that people really want to preserve is the sharp-tailed grouse. So it's good good terrain for sharp-tailed grouse. They have cover that they can hide in and feed in eat the berries. Um, there's a lot of flowers. There are barrens elsewhere, like out east, New England, New Jersey, New York, and they tend to be, first of all, the trees are different. They're pitch pines, not jack pines, and they tend not to have the as many flowers and grasses as, as our barrens do here. It's a little more of a prairie look in, in Wisconsin. We're talking to Dave Peters, author of the new book, Sand and Fire, Exploring a Rare Pine Barrens Landscape, that landscape in northwestern Wisconsin. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Now, me, I haven't been there. Maybe you have, and you could share uh, your experience, maybe picking berries or seeing the scenery. Maybe you have a family connection to that region. Join in with your experiences or questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Dave Peters is with us. His new book is Sand and Fire, Exploring a Rare Pine Barrens Landscape. He tells the story of a unique ecosystem in northwestern Wisconsin. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you have seen this in person or have questions about it, that's 800-642-1234. Dave, I want to start uh, digging into the human history now. Uh, How far back do we know for sure that there were people uh, maybe gathering blueberries or hunting or you name it uh, in in the Pine Barrens? goes way back. Uh, there have been people on this land for thousands of years. There are a couple of archaeological sites nearby, near the Barrens at Solon Springs and uh, uh, Gordon, that have artifacts that archaeologists date to late Paleo-Indian, which puts it about 10,000 years ago, uh, evidence that they were hunting in that area. Um, I, I was, when I started writing the book, I really wanted to be able to say the first people there were hunting mammoths. That turned out not to be true. <laughs> it, it was true in Southern Wisconsin, but not, not up there. The ice was still there when the mammoths went extinct. So they were hunting caribou and, and other large animals. Um, and of course, over thousands of years, people, cultures change, people travel, people migrate. Uh, it became for a long time was Dakota country. And then uh, Ojibwe people moved in uh, from the east in the 1600s, 1700s in this area and obviously are still there today in many numbers, great numbers. Let's bring on a caller. Austin is with us in Lafarge. Austin, hi. Hi there. Um, Yeah, I've been uh, through the Mukwa Barrens many times, Um, had the the opportunity to study there uh, while I attended Northland College. 
punted there and lost there. Um, <laughs> I, I, since having moved to Southwest Wisconsin, I, we drive through the kind of central sand barrens, or at least that's kind of what I call them. Um, kind of North of Baraboo. Um, and just curious how those are similar or different to the Mukwa, Mukwa barrens area of the Schwamigan Nicolay. Austin, thanks for the call. Yeah, we've got the Central Sands region of Wisconsin and uh, more where Austin is now. Dave, do you have any uh, compare and contrast thoughts? Yeah, the, the, there's kind of a, uh, the, a sand necklace from northwestern Wisconsin down through central Wisconsin and then back up to northeastern Wisconsin. And it's similar terrain, the sand, uh, uh, outwash sand, I think for the most part. Uh, the northwest sands are the region that um, are probably most like they once were before America Europeans came came in because there's there's more public a lot of public land state and federal land you mentioned the Mukwa Barrens which is way up on the the northern end of the uh, the Northwest Sand that's that's managed by the federal government the the Namakagan Barrens are managed by the state government by st- the state DNR so there's more open terrain that. Uh, people would refer to as true barons landscape. Thanks a lot for the call, Austin. Uh, Dave, uh, with uh, European settlement, uh, a lot of uh, economic attempts to use the region, mostly lumber. But one thing that fascinated me in your book is a short period where people thought, hey, this might be great for agriculture. And you actually dig into kind of the life story of a number of settlers from, from Europe or elsewhere in the United States. Uh, it turned out this is a really bad place to try to be a farmer, right? Yeah, it it wasn't a good idea in the long run, but people thought it was. When logging peaked in in this area in about the 1890s, um, the state the legislature commissioned the dean of agriculture in Madison, the University of Wisconsin, to go look at northern Wisconsin and figure out what people could do, how people could farm it. And he wrote a handbook, handbook for farming that. Uh, praised the area and promised that there would be prodigious crops of hay, potatoes, there'd be truck gardens like uh, New Jersey. And uh, there was a big push to bring people in. There was an immigration committee, state immigration commission. There were county immigration commissions that uh, encouraged people to come from around the Midwest and, and from Europe. Uh, and people came. They came. They homesteaded. They bought land from the railroad. They bought land from the government. And in this little area, the Namakagan Barrens, which now is about 6,800 acres, there were 100 or 200 people living there for, well, the peak was maybe around 1910 or so. And they were, uh, they were, had their cows, had their crops. They were trying. Um, but, uh, not too many lasted too long. They, uh, I mean, they had a, a little community. There was a general store, a post office, a little schoolhouse that the kids went to school. Uh, but it pre- pretty quickly uh, kind of petered out by the 20s and, and into the 30s, and everybody was gone. Dave, uh, can you bring us into the modern day and conservation efforts? This is this is a landscape that is uh, managed in part to change past uh, changes uh, with logging and things like that. What is the state of conservation in our Pine Barrens? Well, when the farmers left, um, the land, most of the land reverted to the county. People just didn't pay their taxes and it went, the land went back to the county. And the first instinct was to grow trees on it, make some money, get some revenue for counties that were uh, that needed it. Um, 
And so that was kind of the beginning of it in the, in the 30s. But by the 30s, the late 30s, the 40s, and into the 50s, people were aware that sharp-tailed grouse habitat in Wisconsin was uh, fading, was, was vanishing. And people focused in this area, the Namakagan Barrens especially, uh, in an effort to preserve some of that land, some of that habitat, and not to grow trees on it. So in the 50s, after a lot of debate, uh, Burnett County and the state came to an agreement where the state would manage this land, not for timber, but for for habitat, sharp-tailed grouse habitat. And that was, the focus was on this bird, this one species. Today, people talk about, I mean, the, the birds are there and they try to keep them going, uh, but people talk more about an ecosystem that's preserved. And so you have county timberland all around the, the, the barrens, uh, but the Barrens itself is open and managed for habitat. As we wrap up, Dave, clearly you've fallen in love with this landscape. Uh, what are your favorite things when you go to your, what are your favorite spots, like by the remains of an old schoolhouse, to look for this time of year in autumn? Uh, yeah, the flowers are, uh, there's still some flowers out, the, the asters and uh, maybe even a few pecoons, goldenrod and sunflowers might still be out. Uh, I just like to go walk around. There's no trails in the Barrens, but you don't need them. It's open, so open. So I just like to go walk around and you stumble across an old uh, depression of a farmhouse or a foundation. Uh, you can find uh, uh, a few fruit trees that people planted 100 years ago. Uh, I find it just a rewarding thing, um, a, a thing to do. Lots of people canoe past in the Namakagan River, but uh, not many come to the Barrens. Dave, thanks so much for sharing the Barrens with us today. Thank you. That's Dave Peters, retired journalist, author of the new book, Sand and Fire, exploring a rare Pine Barrens landscape, a unique landscape here in northwestern Wisconsin. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Parrott. This Tuesday, Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his position as Speaker of the House of First in American history. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. That's Representative Steve Womack, Republican from Arkansas, who voted against removing McCarthy, announcing the results of the vote. The vote to remove McCarthy was put forward by Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida. Seven other Republicans, mostly from the far right of the party, voted with Gates to remove McCarthy, along with Democrats who voted as a block. Lily Gorin is professor of political science at Carroll University. Lily, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Lily, I try to be careful about using words like unprecedented, uh, but this time, kind of, yeah, right? This is unprecedented in the history of the House, somebody actually being voted out of that speaker position. Yeah, it it is it is novel in that regard. And I got a text from a friend of mine who uh, used to work in the House of Representatives as this was going on, and he said, okay, they just made history. They, they just fired the, the speaker. And is this something in some way that was doomed to happen since the difficult uh, effort to get Kevin McCarthy elected speaker in in the first place and that uh, decision, one of the conditions that some of the uh, hardline Republicans had was one representative can uh, can bring this up to make this vote to vacate the chair? Yeah, and and that was absolutely part of the, the deal in the in terms of those 15 votes that happened back in January that this was potentially signing his own sort of death warrant at the time that he 
made those deals with folks like Matt Gates and some of the others on the far right. Let's uh, look at the dynamics in each party as this played out. First of all, of course, the Republicans, uh, eight members of the House, Republican members of the House, voted to oust Speaker McCarthy. They were the ones who brought this up as well. Can you talk about that dissension within Republican ranks? Well, I think, you know, if you pay attention to actually the debate on the floor around this move, it was all Republicans speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there was division across the Republican ranks with regard to this move. Uh, Democrats basically didn't say anything. Um, and, And so what you did see were people who were supporting McCarthy, supporting, you know, the sort of institution and keeping the speaker in place, that this would be, in fact, novel. And then, of course, it was very unclear what the plan going forward is. It's still kind of unclear, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was part of the discussion as well. Now, on the Democratic side, some Republicans have blamed Democrats saying, hey, you could have helped prevent this chaos Uh, If just a handful of Democrats had voted to keep McCarthy in office, uh, the response from Democrats has been along the lines of, uh, so the deal you offered us to keep McCarthy in power was was nothing. You're giving us nothing to get to vote to keep your guy in charge. Can you talk about the Democratic decision to vote as a block for the ouster? Yeah, I mean, the Democrats basically came into the, the discussion of the the sort of motion to vacate the chair. And this was after they had essentially been thrown under the bus by Speaker McCarthy over the weekend with regard to blaming them for the potential for a government shutdown when they were the ones who, in fact, had voted to keep the government going for the continuing resolution. Um, And, you know, from what I understand, um, the minority leader, uh, Jeffries, showed some of these videos and Many of the Democrats in the caucus decided that it was not their responsibility to save the Republicans essentially from themselves. Back within the Republican Party now, uh, there are accusations from people who had supported McCarthy that Matt Gates and others are kind of working for themselves, fundraising off of this uh, as the whole process went on. Can you talk about the, the motivation side for Republicans who opposed a, a pretty conservative uh, speaker? Yeah, the and again, this goes to to some degree some of the debates around the move to shut down the government um, that we just sort of went through, that there wasn't a lot of clarity with regard to what the demands were um, from some of the holdouts like Gates. Uh, and then we moved into the, you know, this debate over the speakership. And it was it was a little bit more of the same that they said they couldn't trust Um, Speaker McCarthy, um, and that that was one of the reasons why they were voting to vacate the chair. Talking to Lily Gorin, political scientist at Carroll University, about the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and what comes next. Lily, I've said for years, I think the worst job, the job I would least want in American politics is Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives. Looking at the John Boehner experience and Paul Ryan along the way, they weren't voted out, but they were driven out. And yet people are lining up to do it. What do you think it's going to take for Republicans to figure out who's going to be next? I'm I'm not sure. My, <laughs> no, I, my nobody brother is. called me up and asked me that question, too. And I'm like, I, I really don't know. Um, and I think, you know, you're right to raise the examples 
in the past because we have seen this now over a couple of decades. I mean, even if you go back to Gingrich, who you know was the one who first got Republicans the majority um, in in twenty, excuse me, in in nineteen ninety four, and that he too sort of left the speakership. Um, because of some Republican infighting and attacks. Um, and then, of course, you have Boehner and Ryan, who more or less could not ultimately manage to keep the caucus together, and they also left, and you have McCarthy in the same zone. And so then it becomes this question of, you know, what what is it that the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives, possibly also in the Senate, or candidates running for president, what are the plans with regard to managing and governing? Um, and I think that's also where we are now with regard to the speaker debate about who will be the speaker. In other governments with parliamentary systems, if this representative body doesn't have a functional majority, in many cases, you go back to the electorate. You have a snap election, uh, let the voters sort out who gets to be in charge. We don't have that option in the United States. We have to wait until the scheduled election next year. What do you watch for when it comes to the House functioning or, I guess, not functioning between now and then? Well, I mean, and I think I think that's a big part of it is that we've never been in this situation before. So now we have an interim speaker and there's a discussion um, among experts and political scientists and legal scholars and parliamentarians with regard to like how much power and what power does interim speaker Henry have. Um, and so we are in unchart uncharted waters in that regard. And the fact that there is an interim is not about parliamentary sort of situations like this. It's really comes out of the continuation of government and governance um, that followed 9-11 to make sure that, you know, the, the arms of government could work if there was, God forbid, a terrorist attack that somehow decapitated the House or the Senate. Um, the Speaker is also a constitutional officer. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that is written into the Constitution. Uh, and so the role is important, not just because of the functionality of the House itself, but also because it is a position that is part of the American political system. One hypothetical uh, possibility, Lily, is that, okay, if the majority party can't get a majority for a speaker in their own party, you could get some wheeling and dealing from uh, hypothetical moderates in either party, come up with a consensus candidate. I mean, in 2023, it sounds ridiculous as I'm saying that out loud, given the, the personalities and the partisanship involved. Do you think there's any any reasonable possibility that something like that could happen? It's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, I find it sort of fairly unlikely in the current political landscape. Um, you know, obviously, also, there's been some discussion of the fact that the speaker does not have to come from the house itself it can be somebody outside of the house um, and i know in the past and also in this week there have been discussions about having donald trump possibly become speaker of the house um, that may also not happen in this particular political landscape um, but it's it's unclear 
what the argument that any particular individual is making with regard to taking on the speakership. Um, and while we have some folks like Steve Scalise um, and Jim Jordan having, quote, tossed their hats in the ring, it's not necessarily clear how they would operate differently um, or in what ways they would sort of change the dynamics from what McCarthy was doing. Yeah, in just over 40 days, Lily, I mean, that's the deal to avoid a shutdown expires then. Assuming we get uh, somebody in as Speaker of the House, uh, they're going to know their own caucus is watching over their shoulder. Do you think that potentially raises the prospect that we might have a shutdown in, what, six weeks or so? Yeah, I think the odds makers immediately up the odds <laughs> um, after the vote to vacate the chair um, on Tuesday. Uh, with regard to government shutdown coming when this continuing resolution expires. Lily, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be on Wisconsin Public Radio. That's Lily Gorin, professor of political science at Carroll University. She talked to us about the historic vote to oust Kevin McCarthy from his post as Speaker of the House. And what happens next? Put lots of question marks after that last sentence.